what drawing does for me, which no other medium in the world can do is that you're able to leave out information and focus on specific areas and bring them out. You might just want to focus on one thing in, in this fast scene, or you might want to try and recreate that whole scene in one go. But essentially you are the editor. You have now become in charge of your own destiny in terms of what you want to, to take from this, from this scene and from this situation. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Listeners will know that this show is primarily about the pursuit of urban sketching. Or to put it more generally, the act of drawing or painting your world from observation. There are two major reasons why this is so. One, I believe everyone's environment is full of moments of exquisite beauty and scenes of accidental art which would become more visible to us if we gave them our time and attention. Alas, both time and attention are in short supply these days. Hence, the role of the urban sketcher in their community is even greater than ever before. 2. Drawing from observation is how I have learned to draw after years and decades of trying everything else. This show began during the pandemic as a way for me to connect with inspirational artists and urban sketchers. And so I imagined the only audience it would find would be other urban sketchers, people in my exact situation. But the show has grown beyond these narrow ideological confines. Every week I hear from listeners who are artists of other hues, such as fine art painters and mixed media artists, and many, many more who only dabble with art in their precious leisure time. This second group of people is very dear to me because I think any adult who takes out time from their life to make art is making a wonderful and a very brave decision. Our lives are driven by the idea of FOMO or the fear of missing out and our phones try their hardest every day to keep us entangled in the affairs of other people. So if you put in time every day or every week to stare at a blank sheet of paper and actually make something, I think you're a hero. And I am glad to be able to speak with you today. Today's episode is a very special one. It's the first time I have been scouted and approached to do an interview. At first, when I read the email, I thought it was surely just spam and I ignored it for a few days. But I'm so glad that I was able to have this conversation because it gives me insight into things that have been a part of my life but that I never seriously took a look at. That is Google Doodles. And two, it demonstrates the different ways that observational art and plein air painting can be, even if not the final outcome, a nevertheless important part of the creative process. My guest today had limited time for this conversation. They're a very important person. And I felt quite uneasy about wrapping up a recording in under 60 minutes. When I realized it was not going to be a long form conversation in the way that I prefer, I had to put in some serious thought to decide about how I would record things and how I would finally present this episode to you. 
form follows function, as my engineering design professors would say, so a 60-minute conversation has no business being structured just like a two- or three-hour-long conversation. I'm taking a bit of a creative risk here, and that makes me a little nervous, but I hope you enjoy the episode nonetheless. As always, a big thank you to all the people who support my work through Buy Me A Coffee or Substack. Here's a message I received on my Buy Me A Coffee page from a kind listener this week. They said, I loved your 30 days of Vancouver retrospective. As a self-taught slash self-learning artist, it is as helpful hearing your own reflection on your growth as it is to listen to your other guests' journeys. It's also so unique and rare to find it in the art podcast world. Keep up the great work. Thank you, dear listener. Your words mean a lot to me. I am just one person cosplaying as artist, writer, and podcaster. This puts me in charge of everything around this show, right from sending the first email to a prospective guest, to coming up with questions, to conducting the conversation, to editing the raw files, and finally sharing the episode with you and promoting it on my social media. Listener support via micro donations is therefore crucial to keep me going because, believe it or not, podcasters have bills to pay too. We live in a crazy world. So before we get into it, I just want to remind you that if you like this show, there are a couple of links in the description to help support my work. Anyway, more on my plans for later this year. Very soon, let's get on with today's episode. My guest today is Matthew Cruikshank, an art director in the Google Doodle project. Google Doodles, in case you didn't know, are the artworks you see on the Google homepage, changing every day to reflect on historical events as well as contemporary news. It is an incredible art project that has generated over 5,000 doodles in different parts of the world. There are doodles which appear as static images and some that are videos. Still others are interactive. You can press buttons to engage with the elements in them in interesting ways. They serve to not only entertain us, but also to inform and educate us about the works of remarkable individuals all over the world. But every doodle is not about an individual person. This conversation was particularly prompted by a doodle made to celebrate Route 66, the iconic road that cuts through America. Matthew Cruikshank drove down Route 66, 2,500 miles from Chicago to LA, in just over two weeks to document the changing landscape, to celebrate this route's historic value and space in modern American history, and to observe its place today in nostalgia and pop culture. He did all this by making hundreds of urban sketches and paintings along the way to represent his impressions. And these were cut, copied and pasted into a wonderful video collage that became that day's Google Doodle. And you should most definitely watch it. There's a link to it in the episode description. Find also links to Matthew's other work 
and my best insights from this conversation in the episode description. Our conversation is about sketchbooking, the value of traditional skills, even if your final output is digital, the magic of Route 66, and of course, Matthew's personal and professional journey, which began with Google 10 years ago, but which really began as an artist in the UK with a sketchbook in his hand. Enjoy. Hello, Matthew, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to speak with you. Thank you for giving me your time today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I love your title. I love being included amongst the sneaky people. <laughs> being included amongst the sneaky people is pretty much what uh, all my guests are about because I love to speak to guests who find beauty in their environments. And in this vast world we live, we're able to travel so much more today than we have ever been able to. And we're able to record it in so many ways. I'm fascinated by people who keep sketchbooks to record the world as they see it. And this effort to do something that sounds like it comes from a bygone era in a time of so many digital tools and digital mediums of communication, but it continues to play a role in so many lives and it continues to touch so many lives. So I guess what immediately struck me as most interesting when I was trying to read up about your work was the role of the sketchbook in different stages of your life how you started to make art of your world, how it was discovered at Google, and how it still continues to play a role in your life today, even though your the final output of your work is in the digital medium. Tell me a little bit about the evolving role of sketchbooks for you. Well, I mean, I think it, it all began at art college with, um, with a tutor called Peter Parr. And Peter is a man who um, has his sketchbook permanently fused to his hand at all times. Pete really sees sketchbooks as recording devices, um, ways that we can interact, uh, almost like diaries in some ways. And, you know, the idea that you really need to sort of practice and draw so much in order to sort of try and, try and get better. But these are also very personal moments for you as well. So you can have sketchbooks, which people will never ever see. And you can have other things that you might be a little bit more proud of that you want to share. But essentially, they're they're an extension of your hand and your brain and your mind. And we might go into that a little bit further, but yes, going to our animation college and art college really taught me that this sketchbook is vital. I do remember there was one weekend that I, I was out with my girlfriend at the time and we were in a clothing store and it was an incredibly boring situation. And Peter was actually there. He actually emerged out of his clothing, clothing <laughs> rack. And he was there with his wife, but he had his sketchbook. And he was, he was sketching, he was making use of this sort of 10, 15 minutes that he had. Um, and he said, well, where's your sketchbook? And I was kind of taken aback. And <laughs> I think it's always kind of struck me that this thing should be with you at all times. So what I've done for the last 25 years is live in fear that Peter is going to pop out from the bushes or somewhere and ask me where my sketchbook is. That, that's a great story. And I absolutely endorse that view, by the way, of having a sketchbook with you at all times, I can confirm that there are no more boring moments in my life because I get to airports ahead of time just so I can draw. And I love being in random places where I have nothing to do so that I can have an excuse to draw. Airports are, airports are perfect. Um, lines for hipster bakeries I've noticed in San Francisco seem to be good, <laughs> good moments. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the sketching everything whenever you can, even in, in a small scale, in a small thumbnail, 
um, because, you know, inspiration really is, is everywhere. And these sketchbooks are vital to kind of more of the commercial work that I do and other people would do as well, because I think you can pick up very interesting kind of ideas that, you know, chronologically you can put together and you can go back to them as sort of reference devices as well. So I think that's another interesting way to look at sketchbooks. Yeah, that, that's such a great point. It, a sketchbook is, is like a private space when so much of the work we do, we feel instantly compelled to make public. Everything that you draw, you feel like it needs to now be validated by other people in order to be a quote-unquote good drawing or a bad piece of art. But a sketchbook allows this personal space which you don't have to share with anyone where you can process your ideas, where you, like you mentioned, you can collect raw ideas and they can become reference material for work afterwards. So I am quite fascinated that uh, you used a sketchbook for what is essentially the subject that our conversation today revolves around to make this particular Google Doodle, which is an incredible story told from Chicago to L.A., Tell me a little bit about the Route 66 doodle. Tell me a little bit about the importance of Route 66. Why did you feel compelled to do this? I mean, you know, being fortunate enough to come to America, the, the, the thing that strikes you is, is the landscapes, the vastness of it. Um, and there's the incredible history of this, this mother road all the way back from when I read Steinbeck novels as a kid and then to come over and uh, understand and read a bit more about this sort of archery that led through America that was this sort of vessel for the hopes and dreams and endeavors and struggles of people. And it was this incredible moment in Americana history of incredible cars and street signs and buildings. And I don't know, it's something very interesting about, about that. And then the I-40 came along and all of a sudden everyone was in the fast lane and not the slow lane. And so what happened was, you know, it's Route 66 turned into this sort of area of melancholic beauty and abandoned buildings and these kind of abandoned dreams to some extent, which are really great to paint and draw on a, on a purely kind of physical level to go out there and see these kind of, um, yeah, it's moment in time. It's almost like ghost town type thing. So I thought that was fascinating. Now, now what we do on the team is we celebrate human achievement. We celebrate human endeavor. We celebrate locations and events and trying to bring the best out of the world. And I think Route 66 really struck me as a really interesting location. Can I celebrate the whole route and then what that represents to others? So I uh, pitched the idea and we kind of uh, let it percolate for, for a number of years and then seemed like the right time to, to go and, and sort of getting the buy-off from the rest of the team. I was able to fly out. Um, in September 2019 to get to go to Chicago and then to drive all the way back to LA, which took two and a half weeks, um, roughly, you know, sort of a hundred ish miles a day. But then the idea that you're pulling over to the side of the road and that you're painting and sketching and observing as you go. Yeah. And it seems so incredible to me to think as an in independent artist myself, and I'm sure it will amaze so many of my listeners that this kind of time and effort and resources would be put into something that is titled Doodle, and <laughs> albeit with a capital D. And for something that seems, from the outside at least, it seems so ancillary to the work of the company Google. So I'm quite fascinated with this kind of 
whimsical creativity operating within one of the biggest companies in the world today. When you proposed your idea, did no one ask you to maybe just Google it? <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, we do, do do a lot of research. You can't, it's a rule. You're not allowed to use Google at Google. Otherwise you go into some kind of internal vortex. So yeah, <laughs> don't do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was enough there. But we, I wanted to take it in a different direction. You know, I wanted more of an animated sketchbook journey. Um, I, want, I really we have, I felt, felt very lucky to get the Bobby Troop track, which was amazing, uh, which kind of ties it all together. But, you know, in essence, it's, it's a, a little moment, a little kind of window into a world of, of, of celebrating anniversaries and events. And this seemed a little different to something that I had done before. Where traditionally, I, I mean, I do use the computer a lot. Um, I do a lot of animation in the computer. This was animated in there, but all the backgrounds are obviously painted. All the kind of artifacts and all the images and symbols are, are painted as well. And it's a case of putting that together. So I think, I think on our team, we try and do new things, try and get new experiences. Um, and I, and I lo absolutely love the computer. Don't get me wrong. There's just, it's an incredible device and tool for perfection in some ways. There's no button that says create great art and you just press it. There's a lot of time, work and, and skill that goes into it. But with this particular doodle, I wanted it to feel hand-drawn, to feel like there was more of a human element behind it. Um, almost keeping some of the mistakes that happen when you go, go out and paint in real life. So there's things that, that are there that could have been better and they could have been worse. It's part of the thing about going on a road trip is that the mistakes in the U-turns are going to be as interesting as the whole journey. So thinking about using the best tools for the job, I now think about drawing on location, using a sketchbook, driving along Route 66 to stop by the side of the road to take out a sketchbook and then use your paints to make something. And a lot of people would think this is not, these aren't the optimal tools for this job. What is the case for why drawing on location, observing on location, painting on location is the optimal way to do something like this. Yeah. I mean, you, I could, you could record it on a, on an iPad or something like that. You could, we could have used that. There's some incredible, um, technology out there. I just think going back to analog is really, uh, stripping away a lot of your kind of tricks and techniques, I think, that people can learn as, in, as they exist as commercial artists. There is a lot of it out there. I say tips and tricks, but they're things that you can learn and they're, they're, they're skills in, the, in themselves. So what if I could put that to one side and go for more of an honest um, take on things, even if I was using occasionally a cartoon style, but there are occasionally some, some sketches and images where you throw all of that away and you just observe and try and record what you see as you see it using, you know, a variety of, of, of methods that seemed more appropriate for, for route 66. You know, I think, I think when I think back about the people I met and the areas of that I drove through, there's a, there's an honesty and integrity to those people as well. So it seemed to fit into the, the environment. Did you also find that there was a lot of discovery along this process that you started with certain ideas of what the end product might look like, 
but then along the way you found things that changed your mind or things that struck you as inspiring what what were some things that you discovered along this route that you hadn't accounted for before yeah it's a great question i mean all of it to to, to some extent is that we i didn't really i didn't really know there were a few key markers and key things we thought would make it into the finished piece but um more it was a case of just going and, and seeing what happens and what we find along the way so you know you're starting from chicago which is incredibly vibrant and the colors are are so sort of blue to reflect the music and uh, you know i mean it was warm when i was there but generally i know i understand that it's very cold there as well but i have that feeling that you've come out of this really really interesting city and then from there you're sort of migrating way out west where all your color palettes are going to change i never really thought that 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 would happen you get into much warmer colors as we got there only partly because i drove route 66 in a very warm part of the year but, um, you know, generally in terms of, uh, I, I was just open to any kind of encounter and meeting people and chatting to people and see, and, and, you know, they would see me draw. And then there were incredible moments of solitude where it was just you and the sketchbook in the middle of absolutely nowhere. So it became a test of, uh, attrition to some extent in those conditions because of how warm it was. But generally I, I just went with a blank canvas and a ton of sketchbooks and some paints and just let the road trip sort of take its own life and path. So I'm thinking about how, how it's difficult sometimes as an artist to let go of the sense of control. And when the stakes are highest for us, when we're doing work for others and when we're doing work with the idea that it's going to be seen by so many other people, to allow for discovery, to allow for something unexpected to happen and to trust in that process. It's, it's a difficult process and I'm, I'm curious to understand how you have come to trust it over time. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a kind of saying in the animation industry that you have to, you have to get 10,000 bad drawings out before you begin to sort of make progress. And I think it's the same with, with sketchbooks in a way. And I think a way of eliminating pressure is to, to, to do a lot of it. You know, so when I go back to, to Pete's sketchbooks, he would, Peter really wouldn't be afraid of having four or five pages that were really exploratory, not, you know, his eye wasn't really focused, but it was all about the feeling. And he had to do those four or five pages in order to get page six, which was just stunning and, and matched and was just perfect. It really, there was hard work that went into it. So the, to ease the pressure on, on Route 66, I just painted a lot. So what you're seeing is not everything. Obviously, there's over a hundred paintings and sketchings just in two and a half weeks. But um, I was able to just, you know, the more the more I paint, the more that you're going to capture these these moments and then reflect back on them a day or two later, uh, not immediately, which I know a lot of people can do and I do sometimes. Is that you the urge to rip out the page? Uh, you know, you you feel like you're not doing great work. Your eye is, hasn't quite settled into into what you're looking at. But I just kept going, kept going. And then a couple of days later, I would review the paintings and the ideas. And I would like them more a couple of days later than I would instantly. So yeah, it's a, it's a case of doing, doing a lot of the groundwork. A lot of the pencil mileage really is going to help you in the long run. Now, I, I have been fascinated by Google Doodles several times. But at no point did I think about them beyond the few minutes on certain days that I would click on the video if there was an animated video and I would see what was being made. And I think 
so many millions of users appreciate this beautiful thing that's created for them on the Google homepage for free. And it's always new and it's changing every day, but they don't give it enough time to get a sense for exactly what's being done. And the more I read about your work, the more I learn about what, what Google Doodles are about, the more I'm fascinated by just the incredible scale of this project. How long has it been going on? How many doodles are we talking about? And who are these people who do this, so much work for us? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, we're, I think we passed a milestone recently of a 5,000th doodle. So it's a lot because you, you imagine that they are being shown often in countries where we're not ourselves physically. So you might not see that. So um, there's a lot that are done. There is a sense amongst us that we're very proud and very lucky to have this little window that we can give to people. But I, we think it's really important to celebrate large events, but also those small events as well. So it's an educational tool, I think, is that if we can pique people's interest above a search bar, and they see something where they are kind of intrigued enough to click on it to discover someone that they've never heard of, an event or a thing in time that happened um, that has merit and has a positive impact on society. That is really where, where we want to be. And everyone's invited and it's about celebrating diversity as well. And inclusion for everyone, that's, that's the aim. And we, we try and do that in, a, in increasingly in a world where people are having more and more to do and there's more and more information coming to them. So uh, Route 66 was more of a long form, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, and I do think we're looking at ways in which we can kind of get our message across in a, in a simple, quick way sometimes as well, because, you know, there's a lot going on in, out in the world. We definitely don't want to uh, interfere or to confuse people that are getting on with their day that have come to Google to uh, Google their foot and walk cream or whatever they're, they're doing. There are a million gazillion things that people could be, could be Googling, but while they're doing the very important things like that, they could actually have a quick moment to, to take a look at someone's life that they've never heard of. And have these aims and these goals also made themselves apparent to you over time? Was there a sense for what you were doing right at the start of it or over time, as you do more and more things, as you spread your wings further and further, have you come to appreciate this role that Google Doodles play in our larger world? Definitely. I definitely have come to, to appreciate it. I mean, we didn't really, or I've only been there 10 years, so we, the, the Doodles have been going for a little bit longer than that. But there is that sense with Larry and Sergey B, when they were completely integrated more into, into the company that you know, this thing started with an accident with a sort of Burning Man logo, which because they went out of office when the company was so small. But even that in its, in its own way is interesting that the Burning Man logo is a, is a human sort of uh, silhouette. You know, they're, they're trying to, and in a way, that's what we've been trying to do ever since is to try to have this idea that um, there's a human behind Google. And, and that is something that we want to... Um, want to celebrate as well the connecting technology of, of Google and also the people that use it. So, you know, doodles for a long time, were just stuck together with sticky tape behind the scenes. And I think as they've grown in importance and significance, we've tried to sort of trim down and, and sort of zone in on, on how we can do better and where we can do better and how much more technology we can use, but also sparing a thought for more of the, the analog style and approach and the simple illustration style as well. 
Right. And it occurs to me that so many doodles must be only uh, living in this vast world that we do. So many doodles must be just regionally specific or contextual only to a part of your audience. So there are always doodles that a resident of America might not see that, that are going on in the rest of the world. What is this project like to keep track of things that are significant and to, to, to think about not only the trends, but also the evolving moods of different regions of the world? How do you, how do you uh, break down the, this enormous problem? So, I mean, there, there are so many unsung heroes behind the Doodle team. Uh, incredible project managers and people that are going through and looking at all of the kind of uh, applications or the entries for what would be a good doodle or what would make a, a, an impactful doodle. So, you know, when you're having sort of a thousand submissions and you, you then you begin again, unsung heroes that are looking at it in terms of how does it break down as a calendar throughout the year in terms of the events that we want to celebrate. Uh, the new people that have come in to the, to the criteria, into the mix, and how is that going to work as one sort of giant calendar for the year? And then when you've got that far, you then come down to sort of assigning or wondering what that doodle could entail in terms of its tone, in terms of its look, uh, in terms of is it an interactive game or is it something that's going to be a static illustration? These are all conversations that that go on, what is the best way to celebrate this event? And then breaking that down even further into teams and the people that want to work on it, the people that um, are free to work on it. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a comparatively small team with a small team of engineers as well. So um, that's the most fascinating part for me, I think is the, the engineering as aspect of, of working with these people that are so logical and I'm illogical, or most artists <laughs> are illogical. So there's this fantastic, you're laughing because I think you, you have a background as an engineer and you're a super smart <laughs> guy, but you know, there's this logic and then you have to throw away logic sometimes and just go with spontaneity. So that's, the, that's a really interesting collaboration right there. You made a really great point, actually. Uh, I was thinking about this recently and you framed it as logic and illogic, but I frame it as things that can be quantified and things that you cannot put into numbers and equations. And I, I guess it is logic and illogic because logic is about being able to break things down in that sense. And some things defy logic and becoming an artist or indulging in my creative side with a background of education in engineering, I hold a master's degree as well, has been interesting because I have learned to put both into perspective, that there is a space for things that make sense when you break them down into an equation, and that there are things nonetheless, no matter how good our equations get, that you simply cannot describe with some variables, and you simply cannot predict with, uh, with an equation or a model. And that's where this creativity comes in. And this creativity is seeped into everything, right? Like it manifests also in the technical work that goes behind that that goes behind Google, done by so many uh, thousands of Googlers, as it is manifested and expressed more clearly by the artists, by the doodlers at Google. It's, I mean, you, your background sounds fascinating because I think there's there's an analytical approach to to drawing, and um, 
for me, it's about observation, analysis, and execution. That's something that I, that I learned at art college is that you have to firstly observe the thing in front of you. Then you have to analyze what are, what are the, what are the factors that make it interesting to you or would make it interesting to others? And then you have to, the third, which is the hardest, which is how will I execute? How will I extract what I'm seeing to me? So there's a me there's methods to it. Um, we recently, I recently did a, did a doodle for Stephen Hawking and that was something that went in a completely different direction than route 66. And I was very lucky to, to work with his, uh, his family, uh, his remaining children. And what came out of that was this idea that this man with the brain, the size of a planet still had still made time and was still very much into chaos theories and these ideas about, uh, spontaneity. The galaxy was formed out of accidents. There's no such thing as perfection. Really, really incredible stuff, which I think I, I'm just trying to find a balance between your techniques that you learn and then the things that you're not in control of that are happening. Um, the people you may meet, the smells, everything that could happen while you're out and about and how to embrace that and, and let that sort of inspire and drive your artwork more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm struck by these these words you mentioned, observation and analyzing it within your mind with respect to what appeals to you and what appeals to an audience. And then finally comes this execution part, which is literally just the technical skill of being able to depict something in a certain way with whatever tools you might have at hand. I'm curious about the observation because now coming from the background I do, my observation is in, informed by the things that I've learned and the things that I have learned about my world and yours is informed by yours. So this is something that I'm curious about. When you see your world, when, you, when you're walking about or you're driving down Route 66 and other places and you have a sketchbook in your mind and you have the words of your mentor in your head that the sketchbook is a place of good things when you decide to spend your time with it. Picasso said once, and Picasso said a lot of stuff, but <laughs> Picasso said even the painting of an onion could be revolutionary. And I, what I take from that is that you can take the simplest things and, and you can break them down and you could break the mirror and rearrange the pieces of them so that it became really inspirational, dynamic, uh, provocative, you know. So those things. So I think everything is worthy of art to begin with. There are some things which may be considered some days too boring to draw or too difficult to draw or things like that. But um, the going back to the observation side, I think there's a reason why you're drawn to things immediately. And it might be subconscious. You might not even quite know while you've ended up standing, looking at something that has really caught your eye. Um, that's fascinating to me because then you go further and say, well, why am I looking at this thing that no one cares about? <laughs> no, one's, no one's spent any time thinking about it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed if you were ever drawing and painting, I get occasionally people that will walk by and they'll stop and then they'll say to me, oh, I'd never noticed that before. I'd never seen that thing before. And it's only because someone else is looking at it that they begin to see their world differently. But yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's basic compositions and color senses that I think are really interesting that are happening subconsciously. You may stop and look at a building or a scene and what what is unbeknown to you is that there's a series of shapes and connecting colors and circumstances that are just magical that have brought you there to begin with. 
So then you analyze that further. What is that? What is that? You know, is there an interesting power of three going on with the composition? Can I do a very small thumbnail sketch where I can simplify what I'm looking at, break it down? Is it more just about these incredible contrasts? Is this this feeling of, is it the texture? There's so much you could, you can go into. And then what, what drawing does for me, which no other medium in the world can do, is that you're able to leave out information and focus on specific areas and bring them out. You might just want to focus on one thing in, in this vast scene, or you might want to try and recreate that whole scene in one go. But essentially, you are the editor. You have now become in charge of your own destiny in terms of what you want to to take from this from this scene and from this situation. I'm a huge fan of photography and films, but I think drawing is still the most sort of powerful way of uh, leaving things out and then changing the technique or your impression of your thumbprint of what you're leaving in. I had this conversation on on these subjects with uh, one of my guests who is a war illustrator. So he goes to war zones and he sits with paper and watercolors and he wow. paints life there. He paints life in places like Syria, in refugee camps uh, in Eastern Europe, at the border crossings. And we were talking about this. And my question to him was, what is the point of doing, of spending an hour at a location like this to draw what you're looking at when you could have taken a picture, when you could have made a TikTok video, when you could have, mm. uh, you know, the all the news media of our world has evolved over the years to use the latest technology and the latest mediums of showing us instantly what's happening in the world. What then is the value of you spending that time there? And I think we arrived at this answer, which is exactly what you said, this power to edit certain things out. And I want to tell you a little bit about how I came to it as an engineer myself. So as a mechanical engineer and as a control engineer, I see the world in terms of information and how much information we are getting every day from our phones and from our screens is quite ridiculous. Photographs in that time, like to your point, photographs and videos give us complete information about a scene. We see all the colors, we see all the shadows, we see everything that was captured in the frame in equal focus. But a drawing with the artist as the editor of that drawing cuts and distills this information, removes the things that the person thought were irrelevant in order to make a core point about something. And I feel like in today's world, especially with the incredible oversupply of information that we have, it's such a good thing to do to viewers to cut down on the information, to help them to digest what we are trying to show and maybe help them see it the way that we see it. I agree. I mean, so much out there, uh, in, to some extent, no filter on things. And it, you know, it can be, it can be a very vast manic world. The feeling actually that you're, you're drawing to as a form of meditation is something that I think is interesting as well, but your recording device enables that person to just be able to take 10, 20 minutes out of their day to decompress and to observe and be thankful for, for what we see is, is really important as well, as much as it is to, to be part of technology, which is in itself is fascinating and is the future of mankind belongs in there. But um, the simple core feeling of drawing and using basic materials is still so, so relevant. There's no command Z, so you can, you not, if you, you can't undo, <laughs> um, 
which I love. And also at the same time, you should be very proud of the mistakes that people make in sketchbooks as well. So yeah, I mean, taking some time out from all of the noise is really, really important as an artist. And then, as you said, you know, to be able to, to, to bring out specific things and isolate and change and adapt them. Um, again, another Picasso quote, a quote, you know, art is the lie that makes us realize the truth. I think, I think there is something really interesting within that. There's an honesty, even if you're choosing an abstract style, there could be an honesty into terms of what this event or thing feels like more than what it looks like. Um, looking is one thing, but feeling is probably the thing that we're, we're chasing the most is how, how to create that, that feeling through shape and color, not always accuracy, actually, sometimes. Indeed. And in fact, it is the in almost the inability to be absolutely accurate if you are drawing or painting on location that makes it so easy for a viewer to absorb what you are trying to sh share with them because there is this humanity to it. Again, we come back to photographs and videos. They seem invasive to us and we, uh, you know, we label them as inaccurate or misleading sometimes because they, they carry this burden of the objective truth. This is what happened. This is how it looked. This is how you should feel. But art being inherently the product of a person allows us to see it as something subjective. And once we allow it to descend into this realm of things that are subjective, things that are someone's feelings and opinions, we might be a little kinder to seeing things that we might not agree with if it was a photograph yeah. or a video. Again, we were coming to this subject with uh, the war illustrator with George Butler because he was drawing people who were in prison. He was drawing people who were vilified in a lot of media. But the value of a drawing of something like that versus a photograph of something like that and the labels, the preconceived labels that a photograph already carries, which a drawing does not because there is this inherent act of humanizing, rehumanizing things that have been dehumanized. That sounds fascinating I, to, to literally be painting on the, the seat of your pants as well in war zones would bring about its own, uh, interesting mark making and interesting feeling of, um, importance. I, I seem to think drawing is, is you can get away with a lot with drawing, actually, if you're just sketching rather than if you're standing photographing someone or filming someone, that's a whole other thing. But I think going back to potentially what George was doing with these portraits is that there was more of a, a relaxed nature in terms of drawing them instead. And that feeling that, you know, the classic portraiture sitting is, is has been going obviously throughout our history. And there's a sense there that, um, I don't know, there's a kind of majestic quality to it, which you probably would not get, even though there are incredible photographers in the world. Don't get me wrong. You made me think of McCulloch and, and, Don McCulloch, who, who did a lot of this wall photography, an incredible documentary that everyone should see. Um, he, he did things and recorded things in ways that I don't know if, I don't know if drawing could, could quite capture that to some extent. But um, yeah, no, that's all fascinating stuff. There's a sense of things happening in the moment, also in the sketches that you made in this two and a half week journey, because of course, you wake up somewhere, you stop somewhere and you're tired to a certain degree. You may not be as comfortable in the weather as you would prefer to be. And you're working by the side of the road. And no matter how involved you are in your work, you are conscious of the world around you. And all of those things also play a role in the mark making and the 
and the little artistic choices and the decisions you make are these things you you look forward to is there a part of you that that uh, that is you know uh, in trepidation about what might come or have you learned to sort of ride these waves yes trepidation i mean i mean i'm currently painting up in the mountains and these these are i like looking at mountains because the a they make me feel younger and b they have they provide this incredible scale that i don't know how to capture in this magnitude and then and i get very nervous and apprehensive about that and then you have that realization that you should just jump in and see what happens you know there's so much out there and it's about how how to record it and to let the materials do the hard work for you actually that's something that it's taken me so long to understand. Sometimes it might actually be a brush pen or it might be a, a stick or a twig that's dipped in ink. It's, uh, you know, there's just so much there just in terms of what materials that we can use. Um, and that exploration for me is, is the thing that I keep going with, hopefully for as long as I can. That's so true. Uh, I am an ink artist, so I work with Ooh. a fountain pen exclusively. And right. that means that there are several things that I find incredibly beautiful that I will never be able to depict, such as <laughs> the beautiful blue of a sky or water reflections. Indeed, there are even even actually the recurrent uh, subject that I keep coming back to with my readers is uh, trees. Trees are beautiful, amazing things. And in this part of the world that I'm new to, the Pacific Northwest, I'm seeing trees that I have never lived around before in my life. But... As an ink artist, it is incredibly frustrating to try to draw a tree in all its complex beauty. But if I was using watercolors, if I was mm. using paints of any kind, I would have a completely different approach of not only depicting it, but also, you know, the, these processes we mentioned, the observation and the analysis of what I'm looking at and how, if I squint at it, am I breaking it down? Am I now regarding the, the blobs of colors that I see? Or am I now, am I, am I thinking in terms of the different lines and the borders that I'm supposed to follow with the fountain pen? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. How you're choosing one medium. And I think it's, it'd be great if you had some kind of backpack that just had a few of your other tools uh, in your armory as well. So you did have your small watercolor tin and you did have those, uh, you know, you did have a little piece of charcoal or something. Um, you did have some gouache or some acrylic, which is going to dry a lot quicker. You could have some permanent ink in which you'll do, you could do your wash and then you could add in color underneath it, which I think is something that I did for the first time on Route 66. You had these amazing old rotting carcasses of, of cars and old trucks, you know, and you see them littered all over the place. And each one contains hopes and dreams of people that set out on this journey and never made it. Why, why, why is that truck there? Um, but for me, uh, because of the heat, I had to go for an even quicker approach to that, which is to try try permanent ink over, right over the top. So to sketch it straight over and then spontaneously try and capture some of the color with a w quick watercolor mix. And that might be your approach for, for trees in a way is if you like, if you like that initial kind of very, very, uh, distinct sort of way of, of mark making, of, of drawing it as you see it and then go in with a, a wash underneath could give it an extra layer of vibrancy. I'm fascinated by what it is to be an artist and be a creative person working under certain guidelines. Now, there is a there is a format or there is, I mean, it's evolving all the time. So it's not fair to say there's a fixed image of what a Google Doodle will be in the end. But what is it like as an artist to work as a Google Doodler? What is it like to work 
uh, under these kind of conditions? Does it set you free or does it somehow control for certain things that allow freedom in other ways for you? I mean, firstly, I'm just, I'm just one of the art leads on the team so that there are, uh, there are several people, but you make an interesting point because I feel like there should be some guidelines and restrictions sometimes in terms of, um, in terms of how you set up a story, you might need to know if your guideline is going to be, we haven't got that much time, or, you know, this person wants to be portrayed in this certain way. The tone of this thing is actually kind of humorous or the tone of it is very serious. These are all things that uh, help me as a commercial artist. Um, cause I think people should be really proud of being a, as the best commercial artist that they can be, even if sometimes the the brief might not be that interesting or, you know, there might be, there might be some very strict parameters there. That's something to, in a way, embrace and do the best that you can do. Otherwise, um, you know, I don't, I, I think it, I've learned over the years that it's, it is important to take on board the feedback of others and the way that things are portrayed or seen and that the fact that you can sometimes go too far with a, with a drawing or a style or what you're wanting to show. So. Um, with regards to the homepage, you know, we never really want to create anxiety or, or, or fear or, or anything like that. I, I kind of like the idea of it being just a safe place uh, and a positive place. So not everything in, in art and art history and not everything that happens in the world fits into that spectrum, as we know. And I think art, art as a medium should be provoking and should be kind of, you know, there are other avenues to do that. Hence people having their own blogs and their own social media channels. And, and we really, really respect that. But, you know, our remit on the homepage is to, is to add some surprise and, a, and some educational aspect to it. And, um, you know, listen to the people that are, that are, that are smarter than me and that they would say sometimes this isn't the right direction to go. I had I had two ideas from what we were uh, speaking about and I couldn't decide which one I wanted to open with. So here they are in whatever way they come out. Uh, I'm thinking about constraints, you know. So I, I sketch outdoors and I sketch with a fountain pen in a sketchbook and being a sneaky artist, the mandate is that I be inconspicuous in public spaces. Mm. So this imposes several constraints on the kind of work I do. And I speak to other urban sketchers who don't think in this way and they don't have these constraints as a result. They have the tools that they like. They have a choice of pens and paints and they have a larger paper and they have more time. So in order to remain inconspicuous, I'm also often drawing things that vanish in 10 or 15 minutes. I also vanish in 10 or 15 minutes <laughs> from my from my choice of area of drawing. And I'm thinking about constraints all the time because I put these constraints on my work and I really like these constraints that I've put in my work because this is where I feel creativity also comes in. How to operate within these constraints and constraints can of course be a brief that has been given to you and a style that it must be depicted in and creativity often manifests or blooms in these constraints and the way that you exercise your choices within them to do the best job you can. And it feels to me that this is perhaps the better way to move forward, to improve your skills in certain directions, if you are able to control for certain other directions and everything is not always completely open to you. Yes. I, I mean, that the things are out of, out of your control. 
when you're drawing and when you're drawing people, you have to learn to, to let things slide and, um, you can't ask someone to keep that pose or, or stay there for, for two seconds. You know, uh, can you go back and do that for another five minutes? Cause that stranger is gone. Um, they're all, they're all, all these constraints, mainly time seems to be more of a factor. I think with, with painting and drawing out and about is yeah. How much, how, how long you want to, to spend on a, on a subject, you may set out to to spend an hour on it and then set that subject move. So that's gone. So you have had mm -hmm. to learn to record it incredibly, incredibly quickly. Um, I think something that I'm trying to do is not to over bake your image as well, to make it feel like you've suddenly killed it. You know, I think the phrase is that you paint, you paint the flight of the bird. You don't paint the individual wings. Um, so you, you know, you're really learning how to just relax the grip on your, on your your pen on your way of mark making and to have a lighter approach to it. Um, I'm not sure if that answers it, but it kind of, it, I just feel like you should, you shouldn't give yourself too much pressure when you're out there doing this thing, because it's something that, that you can choose to share with people or, or not. And, mm -hmm. um, I think that's really, really beautiful. The fact that there's, there's things happening, which maybe no one will see. And it's very much just a personal connection between you and the world. Indeed, indeed, I agree. Um, Matt, there's this question that I ask all of my guests because we look at people who are successful. We look at people doing perhaps a job that we would like to do. And the tendency is that we take where they are or where we see they are and we make a straight line of their life leading up to this thing that we imagine them as, this single dimensional person, this person who makes Google doodles, this person who is an art director. But this is not often the case. So tell me a little bit about this trajectory of your life and how you have come to be here, how you empowered yourself to take these early decisions, to observe what you wanted to observe, to analyze it in the way that you enjoyed. Who were the people, what were the forces that sort of helped you to empower yourself in this way? I mean, I think, I think my graphic design course, which I did when I was 16 years old, was was incredible for me that really opened my eye to the fact that even an illustration is, is a sense of design. So I think having graphic design under your belt or learning a little bit more about that is, is something that I would recommend for people, even if it kind of sounds boring, but it's not, I mean, learning how to hand paint typography, learning how to do these, to do all these kind of very basic things. That's something that set me up in, in, in a, in a good way. Going to animation college, which animation being the most powerful medium in the world, because you're able to put everything together in one place from music, sound, uh, animation, the drawing style, you can, it's just, the potential is just unbelievable there. So animation is really the, the key to, to the trajectory, I think, because after, after studying animation, you can kind of, your mind has just expanded beyond all measure in terms of what you can do with your, with your skills as an artist. Um, my trajectory was definitely not in a straight line. I mean, I suffered a lot of dips and a lot of kind of feelings and, and things that go well and don't go well. Um, but I think doing these plain air paintings, doing these kind of sketches, which I always did, and then posting them online, uh, that enabled me to have the role that I have now because Mike Dutton, who's another phenomenal kind of painter and a, and a good friend, 
he he saw those images and he was able to say, would you consider the role? I'm, I'm currently working as a doodler. Would you consider coming out here? So mm-hmm. I do think there's an element that comes into play there of publishing your work when you're ready to. And, uh, you know, having a blog in 2007 did change everything. But um, in terms of the trajectory, it would be graphic design, animation, and then moving to obviously Disney and Warner Brothers were, were, were very vital in terms of learning how to draw in a specific way. And I did those before I came to, to, to Google. But um, yeah, social media played, played a big part in that. I just don't want to put too much emphasis and pressure on that for other artists. Yeah. And commercial artists, animators today, as a parting, as a parting question, I wanted to ask you about this process of, of how we acquire these skills. Now you grew up in a time where skills were analog and you were learning to do everything on paper. Everything was black and white. I mean, yeah, it's a long, long time. The the world gained color sometime in the seventies and eighties and everything was transformed. Suddenly you had a box of colors that looked like colors. (laughs) No, but my question is. You know, today uh, you have so many people who are learning digital first and mm. th- uh, people who are exclusively digital artists and some people who, uh, irrespective of the time of uh, the century that they were born in, are exclusively traditional artists who don't, like uh, a lot of people have encamped themselves firmly as digital or analog. And I often try to make a case for why there should be more cross-pollination and a mm. little bit more of visiting the other side. Today, working in such a such an important space, what is the balance of digital versus analog in your life, as well as what you see for other artists who who work alongside you? I mean, I'd hate to say it's fifty fifty, but I do, I do, I do think that. I mean, I love animating in the computer. I love this idea of like trying to go in and trying to develop and become better at that. So I'm, I'm using that a lot. I think about my great artists, artists I admire, one of them being David Hockney, who has this incredible uh, ability to go out and paint, but he uses, he's using a lot of digital platforms as well. He's playing around with that as well. So I don't think anyone can really shut off to, to what's, what's happening here, um, which is... Um, a beautiful merger and no competition. I don't know. I don't see a competition. I see them as um, hopefully the listeners would be this, this feeling like, what, how can I build up my armory and my versatility? And one of those key points is using the computer as well as using your, your core skills of using your hand and your mind as well. So connect, connect them both together. I think is that something that I would, would urge people to do. Um, Obviously, it might be a little bit healthier to be out and about painting and walking and, and out in nature is always so grounding as well. Um, I don't think spending sort of hours and hours looking at your screen or, and when you, it's very important to take breaks and get out there and, and then look at your work a day later or two days later. Um, yeah, those, those, those are things that I think uh, I, I need in my life anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt, I'm I'm conscious of your time, so I want to thank you for this absolutely amazing conversation. I've learned so many things from you, and I'm sure my listeners will do. I will share the links of all the Google Doodles so they can get a sense for what this creativity is about and how, you know, how we can how we can feed it even by doing these things that that are so common with the rest of the world. Just picking up a sketchbook, just making a drawing in these interstitial periods of time, and the products can be so remarkable. I mean, what a pleasure, eh? 
it's interesting, you know, writers write and uh, artists paint, and it's an interesting having to talk about your your work. And, and it's been that's been a really nice kind of um, alternative thing for me to do. And I'm just very happy that hopefully Route 66 or anything like that might inspire people to to get out with their sketchbook and keep it personal, keep recording their diary, their device, and and don't put too much pressure on yourselves. Thank you for listening. Follow Matthew's work on his Instagram page or visit his website. Links to both in the episode description. To support this show, buy me a coffee. That's it. It's very simple. To get more sneaky art in your life, sign up to my newsletter or become a sneaky art insider.